Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nakam Segal Network, as well as Arut Sheva. We are broadcasting worldwide here on the stream. And welcome to another Thursday morning of political talk. So much going on in the world of politics. I say that every week, but it really just seems that it's just reinforced over and over. Big conclave with regard to Jews and politics going on in Washington, D.C. right now. The Republican Jewish Coalition hosting a candidate's forum. It's an all-day event. And hopefully very soon we're going to be going live to that event with Jacob Kornblue from Jewish Insider. Uh, if you're not getting the morning Jewish Insider email, you definitely should be. Uh, I'll reiterate that again. Definitely a good tip sheet on politics and Jews, Jews and politics. Uh, the lineup for that RJC uh, event, kind of interesting, kind of curious. You have all the candidates that are currently on there, even um, some of what are known as the also-rans, uh, going in in no particular order, although it's kind of interesting order. Ted Cruz going first, Kenny Bialkin going second. Uh, I'm sorry, Kenny Bialkin introducing Lindsey Graham going second. Uh, then uh, Marco Rubio, George Pataki, John Kasich, Donald Trump, Ben Carson going after lunch, Mike Huckabee, Chris Christie, Rand Paul, Jeb Bush, Rick Santorum, Carly Fiorina, and then Jim Gilmore. Now, you can look for yourself about who got the shaft here and who didn't uh, as far as this, but we're going to go live to Jacob Kornblue, who is there. And I heard, I understand it's a packed house down there at the Ronald Reagan Convention Center. Jacob, welcome back to Spin Class. Michael, it's always a pleasure to be on your show. Okay, so uh, I can't hear Ted Cruz in the background, although I can watch him as we're speaking on my simulcast here. Uh, and what? tell me how many people are there, what's going on? There were a whole bunch of pregame shows that different, uh, different candidate camps were hosting in order to motivate their supporters. Who's the favorite in the room? Uh, you know, give us the overview if, for those who couldn't make it, uh, what's going on with this uh, Jewish political conclave. Um, you know, it looks like Rosh Hashanah morning services right now. People are still filing in. Um, the crowd actually is uh, pretty much um, uh, calm and behaving. I mean, uh, Ted Cruz just a few minutes ago mentioned uh, John Kerry, and the crowd was a little hesitant to boo him. So uh, it just looks like uh, we're getting started. Uh, most probably once the Q&A kicks off, there are more off-the-cuff remarks, and once the other candidates um, start uh, speaking, uh, uh, it will uh, look different. But right now, it's it's more of a uh, of a uh, an audition for the candidates, but that the people already know whom they are supporting, and nobody will change their minds uh, here and there, other than you know looking at national polling and determining is their candidate a viable candidate that can go all the way through to March. So let's talk about that for a second, Jacob, because we talk about people not changing their mind. They happen to be there. Uh, you know, who are people, who, who's the, the feeling in the room? Who are people supporting uh, out there? Is there a, a sense of a specific candidate that has more support than other candidates? Or do we have a situation where uh, it, it's really hard to tell? Are people holding signs? Are people, uh, you know, people jumping up and down? No signs, and um, as Cruz came into the room, the half of the room stood up um, uh, in standing ovation. The applause was a little louder 
but you could uh, uh, identify in the room uh, where the supporters were. Uh, it looks like what we know, what we already know, that the real race in the Republican Party, the money race, is right now between Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. Although uh, one could suggest that Jeb Bush is still fighting uh, with oxygen to keep his supporters. Uh, they had this morning a free reception uh, uh, on the sidelines of this uh, forum uh, with Jeb supporters. I haven't yet spoken to donors or so to sense if uh, Jeb Bush is. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a sense of disappointment. Those who rush to support him and give money for his pack, seeing him polling at 5% or in 7th place in New Hampshire, obviously there is a disappointment. But uh, just the overall before uh, watching all the candidates address the room, I would say uh, the race here is between Cruz and uh, Rubio. So very interesting, and let's just talk about Jeb Bush for a second, not to pick on him, but Jeb Bush is kind of the ideally suited candidate for the RJC. Indeed, many of the RJC board members, many prominent RJC board members, uh, rushed to support Jeb Bush, as you alluded to. Uh, many of them are still officially with Bush, and uh, in fact, I think really what could we call you know the the most one of the most the most prominent RJC member, at least from national politics perspective, Sam Fox is going to be. Uh, introducing uh, Jeb Bush, Sam Fox was a former RNC uh, chairman or RNC finance chairman, major league player in the Republican Party. So there are some very significant players who are still with Bush. Yet, when I look at the lineup, he got a terrible placement all the way, you know, in the way in the afternoon, followed by Rick Santorum, Collie Fiorina and Jim Gilmore. Will anybody still be in the room when Jeb Bush speaks? Listen, uh, uh, obviously, by having the support he has, obviously, the room will be full. He'll get his, uh, you know, uh, applause. He'll get his love from the room. Uh, you have to understand, there are people invested too much money to give up 60 days before the Iowa caucuses. Uh, it's you know, people really are frustrated. They don't know where this race is coming down to. And therefore, I think those who rush to support Jeb and have not fallen back yet, have not drifted to other campaigns, it's not so much... Uh, uh, it, it doesn't have much to do with loyalty, although you can say uh, loyalty plays a figure here. Uh, it has to do that people really don't know uh, where this is going to, who's going to win Iowa, who's going to win New Hampshire. People are frustrated, you know, is the guy that he's going to win Iowa, Ted Cruz ends up winning Iowa. Is he able to win uh, a general election? Is he able to win New Hampshire? Is he able to win Florida? Uh, is Jeb Bush going to be in the run by March? Is he going to drop out before Christmas? So people are really frustrated, and therefore they're sticking by their choice, um, you know, out of uh, uh, just uncertainty. So we talked about Cruz, we talked about Rubio, we talked about Bush. Any dark horse candidates? I mean, well, a lot of people, if you if you were to look, you know, one of the most natural fits 
for the RJC crowd would be Chris Christie, Northeastern Republican. And there is this undercurrent within the press that Chris Christie is poised to rise in the polls and poised to make a move. Uh, is any feeling amongst the attendees or amongst the people you're speaking to down in D.C. that Christie is on the move? Here's a problem with Christie. Christie's problem is, is, is twofold. It's one that he is not the only compromise candidate. Uh, you still have John Kasich and Jeb Bush in the race as a compromise candidate. So uh, you can always argue that if uh, Cruz doesn't do well, if Rubio um, you know, doesn't uh, uh, exceed expectations, that um, donors or, and ultimately voters are going to settle on a compromise candidate. So you can still see Chris Christie in the mix, but to suggest that uh, Chris Christie would rise above Jeb Bush and John Kasich, uh, that's too early. And uh, to be frank, I think Chris Christie has a problem with this crowd, um, you know, due to his past rhetoric. Uh, he still hasn't recovered 100% uh, of the remarks he made uh, two years ago, I think, uh, when he uh, referred to uh, the West Bank as occupied territories. And uh, Sheldon Ellison is known to be a little hesitant with him, uh, you know, for appointing Muslim judge in New Jersey and so on. So I think this is not his crowd, and he's still viewed as a uh, compromised candidate, but he's still in the mix. So it's interesting that, that one misstep uh, several years ago can imperil the uh, the entire career. In fact, uh, the entire presidential hopes, I guess, of a, of a candidate like Chris Christie. But let's talk about Donald Trump for a second. Uh, the RJC crowd is not a Donald Trump crowd. At least that's the conventional wisdom. Are there Trump people in the audience? He's still the front runner, and uh, you know that's uh, you know what what do they think about Donald Trump? And Donald Trump uh, gave some controversial remarks. Uh, yesterday to the Associated Press about Israel saying, uh, I don't know if Israel's serious about making peace. Uh, it, it, here's the thing with Donald Trump. He doesn't need this crowd. This crowd is not, uh, you know, uh, you wouldn't say they are, uh, you know, um, it's not a voting block. It's not that these people can rally voters to one candidate or another. It's really the money game. It's really... Uh, where donors are situated at. And Donald Trump, right now, at this moment, as long as he's self-financing, he doesn't need this crowd. However, um, there are two things with Donald Trump. One, that uh, one can say, I'm not taking him serious. So whatever he says about Israel, maybe he's uneducated. Maybe he's just being provocative. Maybe he just wants to stir a conversation. And the other part would say, well, Donald Trump despite his comments, is known as somebody who loves Israel, who is close to the Jewish community, who has a daughter who converted to Judaism. So you can always have both sides of the aisle, people saying either he's not serious either, uh, or his comments don't mean much because he is known to be a strong supporter of Israel. But uh, frankly, he is not playing to this crowd. Uh, the 30% or or more that he's registering in the polls is not so much uh, due to uh, donors flocking to him 
or, or establishment um, uh, solidifying behind him. It's those anti-establishment voters that the RJC, you can argue, is part of. Right. Okay. Take Jacob Kornblue from Jewish Insider coming to us live from the RJC political uh, RJC presidential candidates forum at the Ronald Reagan Convention Center in Washington D.C. Jacob, thanks for giving us that keen insight and analysis, and we hope to have you again uh, in the very near future. Always a pleasure, Michael. Take care. Thank you, Jacob. And this is Spin Class, and we're talking politics here on the Nachum Siegel Network and Aruch Sheva, Israel National News. I want to welcome Bob Hart, the political director of New York One, back to the show. And it's been a big week in New York politics as well, particularly when it comes to on the legal front. And what I refer to is the conviction on seven counts of former Assembly Speaker Sheldon Silver, who is now out of the Assembly after 40 years in office. Bob, welcome back to Spin Class. It's great being uh, back on. So, uh, Bob, you've you've been an observer of New York uh, politics longer probably than you'd care to admit. Uh, this is, uh, you know, it, with Silver convicted and the possibility of the other legislative leader being convicted in the in the near future. Uh, this is just a seismic or an, an, an incredible. Uh, an incredible seismic earthquake for the uh, for New York State, and you know how as as an observer, somebody who writes about politics, you know, is what does the public supposed to take away from this aside from disgust? Well, uh, that's a really good question because you, you often when you talk to people who aren't necessarily as politically sophisticated uh, as the people who cover it all the time, you hear, oh, they're all crooks. These people are all crooks. Why should I vote? And then when you get a conviction like this. You have to say to those jaded people, hey, uh, you might have a point here, especially when uh, Silver's counterpart, uh, the former state Senate majority leader, uh, Dean Skelos, who was running the state Senate until uh, he was arrested in, in January, uh, and that trial uh, where he uh, allegedly uh, got work for his son in return uh, uh, for, for doling some uh, favors out, uh, some government contracts out, uh, you, you, you start to wonder um, uh, maybe there's some uh, truth there uh, with these jaded arguments that uh, they're all crooks. I mean, obviously they're not all crooks. Uh, some of them are really hardworking uh, people uh, who are in the business for a reason. But it is very, very unsettling to see the legislative people who are running the legislature in January, uh, one uh, be convicted and the other, really, that trial, if you've been following it all, uh, it seems like it's going to be very tough going for the uh, Skelosos to be acquitted. So let's talk for a second about uh, Silver, because a lot of people are saying, well, he this was his strategy to not present a defense because there was no quid pro quo, and he's clearly... It's not clear, but you know, people are saying, well, he's going to be acquitted on appeal because the government really didn't prove its case. Joe Bruno eventually was cleared on appeal, and really, it's not over for for this case. And you know what what the U.S. attorney did was essentially criminalize conflicts of interest, uh, for lack well, of a better word. You know, conflicts of interest are inherent in politics, and what can we do about it? What, what do you say to that? The there is no, there was no smoking gun that came out in that uh, that trial. There was no like memo saying, "Hey, uh, Sheldon Silver, um, if we send business to uh, your law firm's way, uh, we want and which in which you'll personally benefit from, uh, we want a government grant." There was there was none of that. 
Um, so the Silver's defense team uh, has a point in that way. But if you listen and if you read what the jury said afterwards, it was very, very interesting. Uh, the jurors said, hey, no, none of these things in, uh, by themselves, any of these little facts, would probably have done it for us. But it was all these things where it became overwhelmingly uh, a, a portrait of something going wrong. I mean, why was this guy, this doctor, getting a grant, a state grant, before he even applied for it? Um, that the circumstances were enough, that the circumstantial evidence was enough uh, to, to lead to that conviction. Now, you're right. Now, an appeals court uh, has to hear, that. will we'll likely hear this. Uh, in Joe Bruno's case, uh, who was uh, another former state Senate majority leader who was convicted uh, on the honest uh, services uh, uh, law, this law where he, he basically, uh, Bruno was a political consultant on the side and getting money from people doing business with the state, Part of that conviction was thrown out um, by, by an appeals court, uh, and then several of the charges went back to trial. And then Bruno was acquitted on those charges by a jury. I, I think that this is going to be very tough going for Silver. I definitely think that he's going to play the long game. But this was a pretty strong and definitive uh, verdict uh, that came rather quickly. And I think that some of these charges are likely going to stick in the end. Uh, but, of course, it do- does depend on the panel of judges uh, who hears this. Um, and also, this could go all the way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, several justices on the Supreme Court have, have shown some skepticism about this law, the Honest Services uh, Law, which is, which is sort of saying um, that, like you said, uh, a conflict of interest uh, is almost enough to put you behind bars. In this case, though, it's more than a conflict of interest. In Silver's case, it was that he was financially benefiting uh, from from some of these uh, from some of these deals he was making, and we're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court. This is in federal court, not to be confused with correct, you know, correct. state state court. Uh, right. So that that's very interesting. If this case would go the distance, and obviously uh, Silver is going to be out on bail uh, while his appeals are heard, he's not in danger right now at this point of going to jail. Correct. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean, this, this could be a very long time before uh, Sheldon Silver sees the inside of a, a jail cell, if he ever does. And yeah, it's the, I was talking about the U.S. Supreme Court and several justices. I, I believe it's, you, you have to have uh, three or four uh, sign off on it, um, saying, hey, we want to hear this case. But it would be fascinating if, if Sheldon Silver's legacy, among many, uh, was also that he uh, gets a Supreme Court decision uh, based on his legal battle. Uh, this law is relatively new. Uh, and there hasn't, it hasn't been heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll see if they have an appetite uh, to hear it. Um, it's definitely been a weapon uh, on public, uh, in, in the, the arsenal of public corruption charges, and it'll be interesting to see uh, how far this goes up the legal ladder. And we're talking to Bob Hart, political director of New York One, and we're talking about the aftermath of the conviction on seven counts of former Assembly Speaker Sheldon Silver, a name that is very recognizable to many of our listeners, many people in the Jewish community. And Bob, if we can reminisce for a second of, or I guess just kind of contemplate the 20 years of Sheldon Silver as Speaker, of him being in power, uh, aside from ultimately being convicted of corruption, uh, what what is Sheldon Silver's legacy as a legislator or as a speaker? Well, I think for the twelve years of the George Pataki administration, he was a powerful counterbalance uh, to the Republican governor. Uh, he was the standard bearer for a lot of Democratic issues in, in New York State, uh, especially when the Senate was for the almost entirely run by the Republicans, and so a lot of issues like tenants' rights, uh, a lot of issue, uh, other 
issues uh, to the left. Uh, I, I think that Silver was a very strong advocate for, and I think some of Pataki's uh, agenda, a lot of it, uh, and Joe Bruno's agenda when he was running the state Senate, uh, had to be um, watered down significantly because of Silver's presence. Um, I don't know if you can point to dozens and dozens of, of uh, positive uh, things in the, in the Silver legacy as much as uh, him being a roadblock uh, to many different uh, pushes by uh, Pataki. The other thing is is that he was also, I, I've written sort of a doctor no to uh, some New York City mayors. Uh, he kept Rudy Giuliani from running the school system. Uh, the, the, school, the schools uh, uh, didn't really become centralized in direction until Michael Bloomberg became mayor and Silver signed off on that. And also, uh, Giuliani wanted to stay in office for three more months uh, following uh, 9-11. He wanted to be in January, February, March of 2002, and Silver said no to that. And then also Michael Bloomberg, one of his grand initiatives to try to get the Olympics in New York City was to build a West Side Stadium. Uh, Silver killed that. Uh, and he also killed uh, Bloomberg's vision of creating congestion pricing, where people would have to be charged more uh, when they were driving in Midtown and, and during rush hour. So Silver really was, uh, you know, definitely could play the veto card better than the rest of them. And he really was, a, I'd say, a canny, canny um, observer and uh, actor in the, uh, on the Albany stage. So I hate to use the cliche, the more things change, the more things stay the same. It, what is the future of reform in Albany, if Albany can in fact be reformed? Uh, there is some clamoring for a special session with regard to ethics. That doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, I, I, we hear that many legislators are scared to do anything because they're afraid of being ensnared in uh, corruption nets. Is anything actually going to change with regard to our state government, or will it grind to a halt? Uh, what, what do you prognosticate as far as the future of uh, the way the sausage is made upstate? I, you've seen some tinkering around the edges over the last 10 years. When Elliot Spitzer first got into office in 2007, some of the rules uh, changed where you couldn't immediately lobby the person you worked for once you left, left their office. Uh, now now there is a, uh, a timeout uh, period. And the, the big question is... Um, I don't think there'll be an appetite, but you never know, for public um, finance of campaigns, where, uh, which was what we have in New York City for the city council and for the citywide offices like mayor and public advocate and controller. Um, if there's a greater um, requirements of disclosure uh, so that we have a better idea exactly what you're doing uh, when you as a lawmaker are also working uh, in another job, the problem is, is that the people who have benefited by these lax rules are the ones who are writing them. And if they can successfully argue that what happened to Sheldon Silver and what's happening to Dean Skelos are some bad apples and that the whole batch isn't bad, then they're okay. And the other thing is most of these people get reelected overwhelmingly, uh, and so there is little... Uh, they're not really nervous that they're going get, to not get reelected because of what happened to Sheldon Silver. And so that's the other thing, is if you did have uh, a system like public finance for campaigns, uh, that would make it a little bit harder um, to just win you know, 95% of the time. If, if someone who uh, was a neighborhood activist could suddenly get some money and really uh, give you a real run, that could create some competition. Uh, and that could maybe make these people, some of these lawmakers, have to look a little bit more seriously at reforms. I think we'll see some something, but I don't think it's going to be these grand changes that some of the good government groups are uh, are proposing. 
So if I recall, the revolving door rule that you said with regard to staffers uh, immediately going to lobby their former employers, that had something to do with with Silver himself, right? One of his top aides had left and then immediately started lobbying him. I mean, it happened in other cases. And Spitzer kind of took on that. You actually got a feeling when Spitzer came into office that he was going to try and dislodge Silver. Uh, then when Cuomo came into office, you got a feeling that he was going to try and dislodge Silver. Uh, that never happened. Uh, he always seemed he always seemed to be Teflon or impervious to many of these criticisms. And and the commentary is interesting, of course, that it took the U.S. attorney from New York City to go, not a local prosecutor, not somebody in Albany, not somebody connected with the Albany system, to kind of make uh, to kind of come. Uh, Come up, come forward with these charges that eventually led to his downfall. I totally agree with you. Uh, Sheldon Silver was the master of the game. Uh, you could not beat him at his game. There was an upstate assemblyman, uh, Michael Bragman, um, 15 years ago, who decided to um, play with some of the unrest that some of the assembly members had and, and launch a coup against uh, Silver. Silver gained wind of that and uh, in several days was able to crush it um, very effectively. And we never really saw another... Uh, kind of political challenge against Silver. He had a primary with a couple opponents in 2008, um, you know, which he was, you know, he won in a landslide. So the, the, you're exactly right. The way that he finally was brought down was not by someone playing the game with him, not a governor or someone else in the Assembly or someone in the State Senate, but someone who's outside the game, a federal prosecutor. Uh, and I, I think that's a lesson for us all to learn is, is that maybe the rules of these games, uh, the game needs to be changed a little bit so that um, this doesn't go go on. I mean, people had some of these questions about silver for years. Who are you working for? Who are your clients? How much money are you making? These were questions that were able to be to legally uh, brushed off uh, when a reporter would ask you because the disclosure rules were so vague. I think people would have been outraged had uh, a John Boehner or Paul Ryan had some sort of secret law firm going on and running the House of Representatives. Uh, and that's sort of what we had going on for Silver for quite some time. Bob Hart, political director for New York One. Uh, he has a morning email political itch that you should certainly get on a daily basis. And uh, thank you for joining us here on Spin Class. Hope to have you back in the very near future uh, to talk uh, possibly about another uh, outcome of a legislative leader. I'd, I'd love to, and uh, let's keep spinning. Okay, fantastic. This is Spin Class here on the Malcolm Siegel Network, as well as Arut Sheva. And certainly, we have to mention next week coming up in Paris, France, that Malcolm Siegel Network will be hosting a Jewish Unity Initiative. Nachum will present two amazing episodes of JM and the AM from Paris on Wednesday and Thursday and a Jewish unity concert called Let There Be Light on Wednesday evening from the Great Synagogue of Paris. The concert will stream live on our stream, NachumSiegel.com and the NSN app, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Spread the word and tune in. And very, very quickly, we have – I want to just uh, talk – Two, two items. Uh, one, congratulations to Councilman David Greenfields, whose perseverance with regard to a bill known as Intro 65 will place private security guards, not unfortunately not school safety agents, as because the de Blasio administration refused to do that, private security guards at all yeshivas with more than 300 children. Uh, unfortunately, not all uh, council officials support the bill. Uh, Daniel Drum, the head of the Education Committee, said, as chair of the Education Committee, it is my obligation to fight for every dollar for public school students 
apparently he doesn't acknowledge that New York City is also responsible to educate all students, no matter where they go to school. And the last one is that we may not appreciate him so much, at least on this show, and we don't appreciate him enough, but Donald Trump is definitely a genius in many ways. The guy is an absolute marketing whiz. I found out this week that he trademarked the the trademark Central Park. Central Park, anytime you use a Central Park thing, glass, whatever, painting, he gets a royalty from that. He actually went ahead and trademarked it at, with the traffic office. New York City knew about it. And the New York City Parks Conservancy, the Central Park Conservancy, also knew about it. They didn't object to him. New York, Central Park is a public icon. It's part of the city. It's part of the fabric of the city. Donald Trump owns the trademarks. The, and it's incredible that every time anybody does anything with Central Park in it, uh, he gets a royalty for that. He has the exclusive rights to the Central Park name. Man is truly the art of the deal. And it's incredible that New York City stood by and allowed this to happen. The amazing thing is when he says that our government leaders and people in government are stupid, he actually has firsthand experience in knowing they are stupid. Because I got to be honest, folks, if New York City is giving up all this revenue to Donald Trump, they truly are stupid. Thank you for joining us here on another episode of Spin Class. We will be with you next week for Hanukkah. Don't forget about the upcoming Jewish Unity Conference live from Paris, France, Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern here on the stream.